Well, we continue on in our series on Ecclesiastes, and um, when I put the worship folder together, I was a little more ambitious um, than I should have been in terms of the amount of um, the chapter I could cover. So um, I'm just going to read um, up through um, chapter 4, part of chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, and I, and I won't actually, I'm going to read it, but I, I won't actually be able to address this morning um, the, the middle section. But um, nevertheless, it's helpful to read, read the whole and to get a sense of the whole um, from the teacher. So our, our scripture reading this morning is uh, a couple of verses from chapter 3 and then chapter 4. The teacher writes, moreover, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said, my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead are better, the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work came from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving for, after wind. Again, I saw the vanity under the sun, one person who has no one other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. There are t- two are better than one, because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone." When he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor man and wise youth, was a, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his kingdom he had been been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. And yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. And surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we pray for the wisdom that the teacher has to bring to us. Sometimes it is a difficult and heavy burden to consider the difficulties of life, the difficulties that he presents to us. But Lord, we know um, that we can uh, be honest with ourselves 
honest with the world the way it is, um, no matter how difficult those truths, knowing that in the end is not despair, but hope and joy because we have you. Lord, so this morning, help us to to reckon with the world as it really is and its brokenness, but how to live in that world with hope and joy. And so be with us this morning. Continue to be with us in this, this Lenten journey. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you live long enough, eventually the world will break your heart. Life under the sun is filled with brokenness and loss, misery, injustice, and heartbreak. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes is very attuned to the tragic quality of life. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. Where we expect justice, instead we find wickedness. Where we had hoped for righteousness, again, wickedness. He goes on, and again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. So much oppression in the world. And yet what is worse is there's no comfort for those who are oppressed in their affliction. Well, this is true even of the oppressors themselves. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Even in their power, the oppressors cannot find comfort. The misery of human existence can be so overwhelming at times that the teacher muses that it is better not to be alive at all. And I thought that the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is a shocking statement, is it not? The misery of life can sometimes be so oppressive and so difficult that it is better to be dead than alive. Better, in fact, not to have been born at all. Now, this is not a recommendation for suicide, nor is it a devaluation of the gift of life, but it is an honest emotional response to how hard life is. Sometimes life is oppressive. It is miserable. And it makes you feel as if you wish you were dead. Have you ever felt this way? I have, many times. And I know you have as well. Perhaps some of you feel that way right now. To admit this is not, again, to be suicidal or to to reject the gift of life, but it is in an emotionally honest way that we respond to pain in the world, a recognition of the painfulness of life. And the teacher, by naming this and calling it out, gives us the freedom to honestly talk about it. 
Remember that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, and the goal of that is to make us wise. The wise person is a person that has learned to live skillfully in the light of the way the world really is. Wisdom is learning to live skillfully, to live a life that is aligned with the world that God created and how he designed the world. Wisdom is a reality-based phenomenon. It is not about theory, but living. It is not uh, present us with an ideological picture of the world that we hope or that we want it to be, but a picture of the world as it really is, as it really functions. The problem, though, and this is the distinct contribution of the book of Ecclesiastes, the problem with the world, though, is that it no longer functions the way that God originally designed it to function. In some ways it does, in some ways it doesn't. There are glitches in the system. Glitches in the system. The world is still God's very good creation. But you could say the world has been infected by malware. What Paul says in Romans 8, um, verses 20 through 23, I'll remind you. Paul, reflecting on the glitches in the system, he says the creation was subjected to futility. Hevel. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves. See, Paul, in his, his use of that word futility, is really, this is the only explicit mention or allusion to the book of Ecclesiastes in the New Testament, because that word futility, uh, translated back in the Old Testament, is that word hevel, vanity. And you could think of the whole book of Ecclesiastes as a commentary on these three verses of Paul. The teacher is explaining to us in detail the content of the bondage and futility that Paul points us to. He is explaining to us why we experience the world in such a way that it is disappointing and there's brokenness and there's so much misery. And it's not just because human beings have fallen, but that creation itself exists under the curse. Ecclesiastes, the teacher, wants to help us to come to terms with this kind of world. <laughs> and um, for the teacher, there's great wisdom in understanding the brokenness of the world. But it is a strange and difficult wisdom. What is the wisdom of knowing the misery and the futility of the world? See, at the heart of the teacher's wisdom is learning what it means to align ourselves with the, way, with the world we actually encounter. Not the world we hope for, not the world we want, but the world that we actually encounter. And it's a very frustrating experience. Have you ever driven a car that is badly out of alignment? Alignment is, is, is something on the front of your car that keeps it going straight. But if you've ever driven a car that is badly out of alignment, it's always pulling either to the right or to the left, and you're always wrestling with the steering wheel, lest you, know, you take your, your hand off the steering wheel for a second, and you're getting pulled out of your lane and into other cars. 
For the teacher, there is a fundamental misalignment between our expectations and our desires of the world and the way the world really is. And so living is a kind of learning to drive a car that is permanently out of alignment. Our expectations and our desires of the world are constantly causing us to crash into trees, barriers, guardrails, and other cars. And the reason for that is because our original alignment with creation was to the world as a garden. The first human beings were created in a garden. The garden, Eden, is a, is a primal memory that all of us carry around. It's deeply etched in us. You could say it's part of our design. And to be clear, for the Bible, when it speaks about the garden, it, it's not simply thinking of a place, some, some lost place that we could find. The garden is not so much a place, but an experience of the world. The garden was an experience of creation, the original creation prior to the fall, as a place that was filled with innocence, vulnerability, love, meaningful work, safety, pleasure, abundance, fruitfulness, freedom, harmony. That was our original experience of the world, and that describes the garden. And all of this was possible because God was in the garden. It was the presence of God in the garden that made all of these things possible for us to experience the world in right relationship with God. But when the human heart fell out of alignment with its creator, all of creation fell out of alignment. We don't live in the garden anymore. We live in the ruins. We don't live in Eden anymore. We live east of Eden. In the Bible, in Genesis, our early chapters of Genesis, um, east of Eden um, is symbolic of human beings leaving the presence of God. And so when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, it says they went east of Eden. After Cain kills his brother Abel and he's cursed and he's exiled from human community, it says he went east of Eden. To go east of Eden is to move out of the presence of God. It is to move further and further away from a relationship to creation in the light of who God is. And what the teacher is giving us account of in this book, and especially in this chapter, is he's describing for us our experience of creation east of Eden. We don't live in the garden. We live in the ruins. And the teacher, in a sense, is grabbing us by the hand, and he's giving us a tour of the ruins. Now, don't misunderstand me. To say that creation... And our experience of creation as a ruins is not um, to say that the world has ceased to be God's good creation. It still very much is. Or to say that it's still not a majestic and beautiful place. It's not a place that we should invest and enjoy. Not at all. But to say we live in the ruins is to describe how we actually experience the world. We don't experience the world as a garden. We experience that as ruins, which is to say the world can be a very harsh and unforgiving place. We know this, right? It is not a place that we often and always find flourishing and innocence and safety. 
abundance or harmony? No. <laughs> the opposite very often. Living in the ruins is what it means to live in the context of a creation that, in the words of Paul, has been subjected to bondage and futility. And that's what the teacher has to, before us. He's giving us an explanation of that. Now, one of the central themes that we find in this chapter, and you really, it runs from start to finish of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, has to do with the fundamental injustice of life. The world as a ruins is a world that is unjust and unfair, a world that is bent. Now, we don't need to be told that the world is an unjust place. Many of us experience it firsthand. We all see it <laughs> nearly every day if we're paying attention. But what we need from the teacher is help coming to terms with a world of injustice. He confronts us with a very difficult truth that I think is very hard to accept. And for me to say this, I, I paused a lot and <laughs> thought a lot in, in this sermon because this is a deeply, deeply heretical truth. And some of you might think that I'm not even Christian in what I say here. But what the teacher has to say to us is this, perfect justice is unachievable within the ruins. Justice is an impossibility east of Eden. A garden can be perfected, a ruins cannot. And the teacher chronicles for us through the book many, many injustices and oppressions of the world, but he holds out little to no hope that we can eliminate them or overcome them or change them. We cannot change the world. We cannot make the world a better place. The world is not a garden we can perfect. And this is not to be fatalistic, it is to be realistic. Now, this is the point that the teacher makes about the absence of comfort for those who are oppressed and even for the oppressors. To say that there's no comfort for anyone is to say that humans are ultimately powerless to change the situation of the world to make themselves comforted. Even the powerful, even those who are doing the oppressing themselves find no comfort. See, one of the assumptions that we have about achieving justice in the world is the belief that if we had the power, we could change things and make it just. And what the teacher says is this, no, on the side of the oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. Not even the oppressors with all their resources and all their ingenuity and power can achieve justice for themselves. See, the teacher views the injustices and the oppressions of the world to be as durable and predictable as the cycles of the natural order. Chapter 1, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. We can do no more to change the cycles of injustice and oppression within the world than we can to stop winter from coming. That's basically the viewpoint of the teacher. They are too deeply ingrained. When Cain kills his brother Abel, the Lord knows about it because the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. The story of Cain and Abel involves not just two, uh, two brothers, but involves creation itself. When Cain spills his brother's blood 
It is the soil and the ground that soaks it up and then cries out to God. And then Cain is alienated from the ground. See, the violence of Cain, in a sense, human violence is like an oil spill that pollutes the creation, which cannot be cleaned up. And we keep adding to the pollution, generation after generation, and all this pollution of our sin and oppression and injustice creates feedback loops within the created order itself. And you see this at the very end of chapter 4 um, of our sacred reading, when we hear from the great, 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 great grandson of Cain, Lamech, who says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Violence begets violence, injustice begets injustice, and we are largely powerless to disrupt the cycles. Now this, I know you're waiting, okay. <laughs> I want us to stew with this for a bit. See, this claim and this thinking challenges one of the central tenets of being a person in a modern liberal society, which is all of us, whether you're conservative or liberal or wherever you find yourself politically which is the myth of moral and political progress. See, we all carry this very, very deep inside of us. And the story at the very end of the chapter, this strange story that it's somewhat difficult to translate from the Hebrew and understand, but I think the point is clear. It is a story, the story about the, the young, poor youth that is wise um, and the old foolish king, which challenges this whole idea of progress. The old foolish king was once a young man who was wise, but now he is the old foolish king. He's no longer able to take advice. And the teacher reflects on another poor yet wise youth who would be better than this old foolish king who's been compromised by the system and is overly institutionalized. Even though he's more experienced, the poor wise youth, he ascends to power he takes over the kingdom, he gains a great following, he leads many people. But in the end, what happens to him? He becomes like the old foolish king who's never able to take advice. And the teacher concludes, and when he's gone, nobody rejoices in him. Right? Surely this also is vanity. What is the teacher saying here? See, the teacher, he's challenging the hope that we put in new political leaders, right? New political movements be the change. Change you can believe in, right? And what he's saying is that, you know what? Poor, young, wise, energetic leaders go in, they get elected, and they're going to change things. And what eventually happens is they become like the system they want to change. And again, you, this seems like a very cynical view of the world, but... I mean, if we're really honest, if we know even American history, we know this is how it works, right? This is human nature. They can't rule any better. They can't seem to make a whole bit of difference from those who came before him. Now, where does this leave us? Where does this leave us when it comes to our pursuit of justice? Let me be clear. To say that justice is unachievable is not to say that we should stop seeking justice. To say that justice is unachievable 
is not to say that we should stop seeking justice. I'm not arguing against justice. But the recognition that ultimate justice is out of reach has to change how we pursue justice, how we talk about justice, what we can expect of justice in this world. See, the various political orders of the modern world are mostly built around a belief in the perfectibility of the world, a belief in the world as garden, a belief in a kind of utopian understanding of the world. And it goes like this, it is, if the right people get power with the right ideas and the right strategies, we can implement and make a just society. But history demonstrates that utopian thinking, when it takes over, creates and unleashes upon the world even more terror and injustice than what came before. When former victims, when the powerless take power and squash their oppressors, they create new injustices. And again, the cycle starts all over again. This begins in the French Revolution. You see it throughout the 20th century in Nazi Germany with the Bolshevik Revolution that led to Soviet communism and Maoist China and Vietnam and in Cambodia. You can name many more. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. And what all of these seemingly distinct uh, political movements have in common is a common belief in the perfectibility of the world, of the ability to achieve perfect and complete justice. I would say that cancel culture, <laughs> the development of cancel culture today is a reflection of a belief in the perfectibility of the world. Now I'm not making an argument against seeking justice. Rather, I am seeking for us to make a critical realignment of the way we think and talk about justice. I like the book by Tyler Wiggs Stevenson, and the title of his book, I think, captures this truth. The name of his book, The World is Not Ours to Save, Finding the Freedom to Do Good. The world is not ours to save. I think that's what the teacher would tell us. The world is not for you to save. We can't save the world. We cannot make the world ultimately a justice place. We will never solve the problem of poverty and violence. We will never overcome the scourge of racism. These are realities that are so deeply interwoven within the human heart and within the polluted creation that the idea that we could extricate them and make them right is wish fantasy. Only God has the power to save the world from the mess that we created. But again, this doesn't mean we don't seek justice. It doesn't mean that we'd stop talking about justice. It doesn't mean that we give up. But it does call for realignment of expectations. And I actually think that when we can sort of own this very, very difficult truth deep in our souls, that then we are set free to do justice and to do good. Because the alternative is that we get angrier and angrier or more and more bitter or more and more cynical when all of our efforts don't seem to really move the dial. When you throw your whole life into it and it, nothing seems to have changed. 
No, we pursue justice. We labor hard for justice, but with humility, with a profound sense of our own injustice. We labor for justice with urgency, but with patience as well, knowing that justice can only come when God sends it. We labor for justice knowing that our efforts will be slow and incomplete and frustrating. We labor for justice and we pursue it, not in a world that is a garden, but in the ruins. So much of the work of justice is triage work. You know what I mean? Triage work on the battlefield where you have doctors and nurses and what they're trying to do is just save people from bleeding out, from getting worse. And a lot of justice, a lot of our efforts in the world is triage. We can't heal. We can't stop the source We labor for justice knowing that many of our advancements and achievements will be temporary, that there will always be new forms of oppression that will manifest themselves and come along. And what this means, though, is that our deepest hope and desire for the world is not simply that the world become a just place, but that the Lord himself return. Because it is only when the presence of the Lord fills the earth that the earth becomes a place of justice. It's only when the presence of the Lord fills our hearts and renews us that we become just and the world becomes just. The experience of doing justice should increase our hope and our longing for God in the world. And our motivations to do justice, to live justly, as the scriptures commands us, is not based upon whether we think it will be effective or not whether we'll be uh, accomplished in reaching the goal or not. We do it simply because that is what the Lord calls us to do. That is what obedience is. That is what it means to live before the Lord. Speaking to the exiles of Israel in Babylon, the prophet Isaiah gives them a vision. They are in exile in Babylon. The land of Israel and Jerusalem lay in ruins. And Isaiah, see, Isaiah sees a future in chapter 51. He says, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like a garden. Her desert like a garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of gladness and song. It is not us that can turn the world back from ruins into a garden, but God alone. Isaiah sees a future for God's people when they will be restored and the ruins of their land will become like a garden and when he will bring the comfort of justice, when the city will be like Eden, full of joy and gladness and thanksgiving and singing. And this is the same vision that the Apostle John has at the end in the book of Revelation, the very last chapter of the Bible, salvation history ends in a garden with God restoring the ruins of creation back to that of a city garden. John says, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. History began in a garden from which we were expelled. But history will end in a garden in which we as God's people will be included and we will behold the face of God face to face. It was the disobedience of the first Adam in a garden that caused us to lose this world as garden, but it was also the obedience of the second Adam in the garden of Gethsemane that leads us back to the recovery of the world as a garden. When Jesus was in the garden prior to his arrest and he was contemplating his imminent trial and crucifixion, it says that he was overcome with great sorrow. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And going a little further, Mark records, he fell on the ground and he prayed, if it possible, if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Paul tells us that Jesus was obedient even unto death. See, when Jesus said that he experienced sorrow to the point of death, he's merely echoing what the teacher said many centuries prior to him, that sometimes the pain and the sorrow of life is so great that it, it seems better to die. Just thinking about his suffering that he would undergo Emotionally, it was in and of itself enough to kill him. Jesus knew what sorrow unto death felt like. Jesus knew what it was like to experience the oppression of the world without comfort. And in the garden, crying out to God with his disciples around him, they had fallen asleep and he was by himself. None to comfort him in his anguish. And from the cross, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. Jesus had no comfort in his suffering and death. The teacher has an image of God, of God as the sovereign creator, the director of history, the judge of the living and the dead, a God whose ways are mysterious and inscrutable, but what he does not have is an image of God as the comforter. He never uses the personal name of God, the word Yahweh, which is God's personal covenant name. He always uses Elohim, which is a generic name for God. God is distant to the teacher. He does not know the comfort of God. He knows that God controls everything. He knows God will judge. God that was creator, but he doesn't know God as comforter. But Jesus reveals to us the God of comfort. It was precisely because of his suffering and death that he is now able to comfort those of us in our affliction. And Paul writes of this God of comfort. In 2 Corinthians, in the first chapter, he says, Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly 
and Christ's suffering. So through Christ, we share abundantly to in comfort. In other words, Paul is saying that the comfort of God comes to us through Jesus Christ. That because of his suffering, it spills over. And we participate in his suffering and we participate in his comfort. In the midst of sorrow and pain and affliction and oppression and death itself, there is a possibility of comfort because of God's own son. Now, how is it that God actually comforts us in our affliction? Through the Holy Spirit. Jesus called the Spirit the Comforter. Through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, he comforts us with his presence. Remember, what made the garden the garden, what made the garden a special place was not all the amenities. It was the fact that God was there. And that what Jesus of Christ um, achieves for us in the garden and by his death is he achieves for us the gift of the Spirit, which he then sends to us, such that we begin to experience the presence of God in the midst of creation again. It is a presence of the Lord that begins to allow us to experience the world again as a garden. Not in full, but as in spring. <laughs> Those couple daffodils that come up, there's lots of dirty, nasty snow still on the ground. But there's life that comes up. And that's what we have in the Spirit, is the first fruits of creation, what's grown, dwells in us and is a foretaste of that which is to come, which means that as we make our way through the ruins, we experience injustice or suffering or sorrow or misery, even as we taste those things, we can still taste the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We can still find hope because God dwells in us. Brothers and sisters, the joy of the Lord is your strength because his presence is with you. And it goes with you. Just as Paul said, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, um, it is easy to feel the weightiness of the world, of its injustice, the weightiness of sitting and stewing um, of, with very difficult ideas that make us uncomfortable and that in some cases push us to a breaking point. But Lord, even as we feel the weight of the world, I pray that more so that we would feel the weight of your grace. We would feel the weight of your love that would be heavier and weightier and more glorious than any of the injustices or oppressions or sorrows that we, bur we carry. Lord, magnify your love and your presence. Help us to know that you are with us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.